Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNOW presents New Focus on Wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton. Drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New focus on wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. If you have any money questions for the show, just shoot me an email. It's chad at chadburton.com. That's chad at chadburton.com. Well, recording this one on June 1st, so that, gosh, we've already completed five months of the year 2022. It's almost half over already. Crazy to think about how fast this one's going. And well, maybe it's because things started to feel back to normal and you know, moving like we used to around the world. And then, boom, it seems like, I don't know, every other person I talk to has COVID or knows somebody that has COVID. I'm still battling a little bit of leftover myself. Um, so hopefully you are staying safe and healthy, but um, I think we're seeing going to see some some peaks of COVID again in the next week or two. With that said, the the market was actually pretty resilient last week. It was a little bit of a stealth rally in the uh, stock market this last week after after being beaten up, you know, and hitting at one point a bear market on the S P five hundred from its all time high at one point down twenty percent. But now, if we're looking at the stock market, a couple of different areas. If we look at the total return, which includes dividends, the S&P 500 is down about 12.3% for the year before the market opens today. Um, if we look at emerging markets, down 13.92%. International developed down 15.48%. If we look at the QQQ, and of course, there's going to be similar stocks in the Dow, the S&P 500, and the QQQ, which is the NASDAQ. It's going to be more tech-heavy on the NASDAQ, though, and it's down 22%. It's more growth-oriented index. When you can break out, as I've mentioned in other shows, if you look at small value or large value, your, your declines are much less. Um, so that's a call for being diversified for sure. The bond market, we take a look at AGG, which is an ETF that invests in the Barclays Aggregate US Bond Index. It's down 8.16% for the year. Let's talk about that for a minute because you got a dividend yield on that of 1.89%. And so when you look at that, you also look at the S&P 500, the dividend yield is 1.41%. Now, of course, the S&P 500 is, is stocks, stocks that pay dividends on a quarterly basis. The AGG is a basket of bonds that pay interest. And so not much difference, right? Between 1.89 and 1.41, if you look at the dividend yield. The 10-year treasury though on the 31st jumped almost 25 basis points. So it closed the day yielding 2.84% on the 10-year treasury. Not too long ago, it was above three. Why is the bond market moving around so much? Well, when rates go up, bonds go down. 
um, and vice versa. Well, the reason why is because people kind of realize, oh, yeah, June 1st, that's when the Federal Reserve told us they were going to start selling some bonds, right? Now, the Federal Reserve, interesting, right? It's um, probably do a whole confusing show on the Federal Reserve, but they set the, the monetary policy. And part of that is the overnight lending rate between banks. That's the, the interest rates that they're dealing with. Um, but they also go out and buy bonds. So back in 2020, right now, the Federal Reserve on their balance sheet owns $9 trillion worth of US bonds. It's kind of interesting, right? It's, a, it's an entity that owns $9 trillion of bonds. Now, for about, I think it was around 4.4, 4.5 trillion was added during the 2020 COVID crisis. Um, the, there was a momentary couple of days where I'm like, oh, not again, where there was a lack of liquidity in the bond market. And we started to see some issues there and, and Powell jumped in very quickly and fixed it. He did a really, really good job in 2020. Um, and they began buying bonds. And what, what does that do? It creates liquidity in the financial markets. There's a lot of things that need to happen in the bond market and overnight lending between institutions. Uh, very, very important for our economy and, and just the way that everything works. I'm going to go into it too much. Um, but in order to create liquidity, they bought bonds. Um, and by buying bonds, you push the price of the bond up and interest rates down. And when rates are lower, people are able to borrow money to go buy equipment to further their business and you know invest in their business. Just cheaper borrowing makes the economy go a little bit faster. And then the economy heats up too much. Whoa, we got to slow things down. We can't make money so easy to get. So rates go up, right? And slows down again. So this is going to be an interesting couple of months because while I've mentioned before, there has been things to say, okay, we'll likely see peak inflation over the next three to six months. At the same time, we're likely to see how does the market react to the Federal Reserve actually selling some bonds, not just letting the bonds mature and roll off their balance sheet, but actually selling some bonds out there. What's the demand going to be like? Um, and so that's, it's going to be really interesting to watch this play out over the next few weeks. Um, but it is rather surprising with inflationary numbers and what the federal reserve is doing that the 10 year treasury is still sitting at under 3% right now. It was above 3% not too long ago. So keep that in mind. But it's, it's kind of one of those things. If you got a lot of cash, you'd still kind of want to average in. I mean, if you look at stocks, I mean, if you look at the S and P 500, you're getting a dividend yield of around 1.41%. So matter, no matter what the stocks, the underlying stocks inside of something like SPY, the same thing as IVV or VOO, those are three ETFs that invest essentially the same thing. The dividend yield is about 1.41%. If you look at the, the SEC, the 30-day yield on most of your bond funds, they're going to be anywhere between 1.89%, like AGG, all the way up to like 3.5%, in some of the more aggressive bond funds that might have a little bit more higher yield or junk bonds inside of them. And so you kind of ask yourself, it's like, you know, investing in stocks is, is so much easier to me because 10 years out, you're like, yeah, these companies are going to make more money. Apple's going to find a way to sell more iPhones and more services. And 
you know, Walmart and Costco will continue to sell more goods and, and those kind of things. You just look out 10 years and it's like, yeah, the stock market can be a heck of a roller coaster ride. But we continue to see these results of 70% of the time the market's positive, 30% of the time the market's negative. But over a long period of time, if you don't panic and sell at the bottom or do the FOMO thing and buy a bunch at the top when it's already gone up and then sell after it drops, like a lot of people did this last year, <laughs> the stock market is going to treat you really, really well. And the dividend yield is almost as much as bonds. So that's that Tina trade. There's no other alternative because a lot of people are like, I'd much rather buy basket of stocks that is yielding 1.41% than a bunch of bonds that's yielding, you know, two and a half to three percent. And if rates go up, they may they may not fare well. And so that's why you, know, you never want to try to time the stock market. The dividends are going to come and good markets are bad markets. The best thing that you can do is when it, when the market drops, that's when you try to buy even more. Bonds is a different story. I think you got to be more careful with bonds right now and average in over a longer period of time and see how this Federal Reserve issue plays out in terms of them selling bonds because we're still at a pretty low rate when it comes to bonds. Um, it's not. I'm not saying sell what you own. It's more of an issue like I've talked about in past shows. If you have a bunch of money that you need to put to work, then you you know consider an averaging in plan when it comes to bonds and then also get a really good certified financial planner like the ones we have at EP Wealth that can look at your debt. It can look at, you know, when should you pay off your mortgage? If not, how does that affect your taxes? What is, what is paying off mortgages versus bonds look like? All those different things that go into financial planning. A lot of that is very, very important. But um, it is going to be uh, an interesting three to six months to say the least. We've got Obviously, COVID rearing its head again. It's this this version that's wildfire around the country right now is more mild than the previous one. But man, it seems to be spreading very quickly. So as soon as we you know lost mass mandates on airplanes and things like that, I bet it all comes back. But it's the supply chain issues that we're dealing with and how that's going to play out. I want to talk about 529 plans real quick. Um, let me give you a, a, a scenario. Somebody wants to help their grandchild, right? So they decide that they're going to set up a $10,000 529 plan for the grandkid. And the grandkids go into college and grandparents are like, hey, you're going to college this next year. By the way, I've got this money in a 529 plan for you. And the kid says, oh, great. So unbeknownst to the grandparents, the kid, you know, their senior year of, of uh, high school is filling out the financial aid forms for college. And parents don't make that much. Parents um, you know, don't have a lot of what's called uh, their amount that they're supposed to contribute. So kid goes to college first year, gets a really good financial aid package. But then kid decides to call grandparents, hey, remember that 529 plan money that you needed me? Well, I need to you know, pay for some books and I need to get some money for rent and all that kind of stuff. Could you please make a withdrawal for me? And so the grandparents send the money out. Well, the grandchild finds out when they go to fill out their financial aid for their sophomore year, that half of that money needs to be reported on their financial aid. And guess what? That small amount, although it was nice, that small amount that the grandparents put into the 529 plan screws up the financial aid for the sophomore year for this kid. 
And that, that happens a lot. It happens a lot when people don't have the good financial advice. So the way that it works now is that when, and there's a good article on this um, by Scott Carpenter in uh, Financial Advisor Magazine. And what they talk about is currently that the money that's distributed to students from grandparent-owned 529 plan accounts effectively reduces the recipient's eligibility for federal financial aid by 50% of the amount withdrawal for the student. This is going to change, though. Currently, though, the, the FAFSA form asks students to report how much they receive from non-parent sources, and then that form adds that gift back to the expected, half of that gift uh, back to the expected family contribution. Now, the solution to this has always been, hey, grandparents, you don't have enough in there to pay for the 100% of college, so we're going to wait until either the last year, the last year and a half, or the last two years to use those 529 plan dollars up so it doesn't screw up the financial aid. So there's always been a bit of a solution to it, but a lot of families just don't know it. And so they make the withdrawal, they screw up the financial aid, and, and then they have to move on. But there's some good things coming for the 2024 to 2025 school year. It means that whether it's grandparents, aunts, uncles, or whatever, people will be able to contribute to a 529 plan, savings plan, and they'll be able to do that without penalizing the grandkids or the niece or the nephew's eligibility for financial aid. That add back is supposed to go away. Now, remember, what is a 529 plan? A 529 plan allows you to set up an account for a kid. Uh, the money gets invested in mutual funds, and there's some really good ones um, out there that just no load. And the money grows completely tax-free. And as long as it's taken out for the proper use, you never pay any taxes on it. So it's like an educational Roth, right? Money goes in, you don't get a tax deduction. Some states give a state income tax deduction, but not in California. The money grows tax-free and you take it out, pay for college, you never pay taxes on it. Um, but the issue has always been this financial aid issue. It's like, in some cases, we would tell people, you, you, your fam- you, you know, the parents don't make much money, so this kid's likely going to get financial aid. So it's not worth you setting up a 529 plan for 50 bucks a month because whatever you have in that 529 plan is going to screw up what your kid's going to get on financial aid. Now, the, fi- the, the grandparents' 529 plan has never been as bad except once they use it, like I mentioned. I hope this is all making sense. But again, the new rules that take effect for the 2024-2025 school year, among the questions being removed from the FAFSA form is the one about outside contributions. So grandparents, godparents, aunts, uncles, um, will be able to contribute as much as they want to their own 529 plan account for that kid without that student being required to report any of the funds later withdrawn. So that's the plan. Now, f- parents are the biggest contributor to 529 plans, but according to this article, the second largest is grandparents. In North Carolina, apparently 16% of the accounts overseen by the state's 529 plan are owned by grandparents. So this is, this is a good thing. This is going to help more people get financial aid without being penalized for somebody that, that was trying to set up something nice for them. Hey, I want to set up this. I'm trying to help you. But instead, I hurt you because of the way the financial aid forms work. Guys, the same thing that can, can happen if you're trying to help a special needs person. So I just want to put this out there is that if, if you know, you're the grandparent, aunt, uncle, or somebody, and they're a special needs person, they qualify for state assistance, 
and you leave them money without leaving it in a special needs trust, you can screw up their state assistance. So this, that's even a worst case scenario. Couple of things too, like let's say somebody ends up with too much money in a 529 plan. The kid gets all through college, they get 529 plans, they get grants, scholarships, and there's money left in a 529 plan. Now you can realize that you can use up to 10,000 of those dollars to pay for student loans. So if you have other kids, you can always transfer money around, you know, switch beneficiaries on the 529 plan around and use that money up to 10,000 for student loans. You can transfer it to another grandkid because since 2018, you can use 10,000 a year from a 529 plan to pay up to 10 grand a year in K through 12 tuition expenses. Like if you're going to a private school, for example. So 10,000 can be used for student loans and 10,000 can be used for primary education. And then there's other, you know, non-college, you know, it doesn't have to be a university type. There's other educational programs that can be used for 529 plans. So keep that in mind. What I do want to push out though is, is that, people have to make sure that their retirement plan is on track before they ever save into a 529 plan. Because one of the worst things you can do, and I see it all the time being raised by a single mom, for example, is that they're like, I don't want this kid to have my life, right? So let's say they, they instead of saving for their retirement, they put a bunch of money away for their kid's education. And then they're just dead broke for retirement. And the kid switches majors two or three times. Don't, don't let that be you. There, there's always ways to fund college, but there's not always ways to fund your retirement account. The more you get in earlier, the better off you're going to be. You don't want to wait till your 40s, 50s to start saving for retirement. It's too late. You're better off investing in a better uh, education for yourself so you can make more money and work longer. You have to make sure you're maxing out your 401k to get the match, a Roth IRA, you know, go back to the 401k, max that out. After tax, mega Roth 401k contributions, get all that stuff done first. And then if you have extra cash left over, save into a 529 plan. So it's very important to make sure that you're looking at that the right way. 529 plans are a great tool, but your retirement has to come first. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait, I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass, the will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. You know, I got to say, one of the, I think, best retirement articles I've read recently was... Jennifer Leah Reed, she was covering, I don't, I don't even know how to say that. I'm going to butcher the name. Of course, I get on air to record and, and don't even practice the name, but it's Ken Deichwald. It's D-Y-C-H-T-W-A-L-D. Um, so Jennifer Leah Reed in Retirement or Financial Advisor Magazine was covering this guy. And, and he's the CEO. Ken is the CEO and founder of AgeWave. And they've got this third release of this ongoing study of retirement expectations and realities. And essentially what they've done is they've broken down the four stages of retirement. Anticipation phase is number one. Number two is liberation slash disorientation phase. Number three is reinvention phase. And number four is the reflection phase. And this, this all makes sense. I mean, I got into the business at 19 years old um, with my grandfather who was 62 at the time. And so his clients were all mostly older than him. 
And so, you know, I dealt with the, the, essentially the reflection phase first and then kind of worked backwards in my career to the, you know, wealth building and anticipation phase. And essentially that's how I became a, a retirement distribution specialist. Now, the, and, and this is important, I think, for people to read, and this is how younger people look at this too a little bit now, is because he says it perfectly. How come when we talk about retirement, we talk about it like a light switch? And, and this is how younger people think about retirement. Let's say they don't even like the word. That's why they like the idea of financial freedom and passive income and those terms, because flipping a switch to retirement makes you think of those stock photos some of which have been on my own website, I'm sure, of, of people you know, walking down the beach holding hands with the sweater wrapped around the guy's shoulder and, and the smiles on the face or sitting in the rocking chair at sunset or you know, just those, you know, you know what I'm talking about, those stock retirement photos. And all of a sudden you flip a switch and you go from 40 to 60 hours a week living the life to retirement. <laughs> and to me, that's not, it's like I've seen so many retirement especially the second and third age uh, phases be ruined by health co- uh, issues and wish you like, you know, the shit of what it could is that I'm, I've changed my lifestyle even recently. A little. But here's what I mean. The f- okay. So let's talk about the first phase. The first phase is what accounts for the 10 years before retirement. And this is where financial planning and preparing your portfolio to retire are so important. That's, uh, you've seen commercials where some companies call it the red zone, right? Retirement red zone, whatever it is. It is. It's very important. That 10 years from retirement, you kind of have an idea of what your expenses are now and what they're going to be in retirement. You know what you like to do. You can figure out how much you have and whether or not you're close to retiring in the next 10 years. You get a plan together and you just, you go, okay, I know how much I'm going to have to save now. My kids are out of college so I can max out my 401k. I can actually start saving money outside of my 401k. And like Ken says in this, it's, it's marked by optimism and excitement over the prospect of retiring. And where the, the stress comes is those that retired this last year or currently retiring and they're dealing with a stock market like this. That's that stressing, that anxiety over financial readiness, which is really the highest level when you go into that second phase of retirement, that first two years or so that I'll talk about in a second. But this 10 years is so important to have really good guidance. How do you transition from the, your portfolio from the accumulation phase to the, the distribution phase? What are all the tax issues involved? What are, what's the issue with Medicare Part B and IRMA when your income is so high that you pay way more than your neighbor for Medicare Part B? Should you do IRA to Roth conversions? Do you have enough to retire? Uh, what's your portfolio look like? Which accounts are you going to draw from first? All of those questions are in those 10 years before retirement. Then that second phase that they talk about basically runs from the day after retirement to two years, they say. It's the liberation slash disorientation phase. Um, this is where they say in, the, in this article, newly minted retirees are excited by new freedoms and the luxury of time, but they're also uncertain about how to spend their time and money. Uh, 25% of retirees in this phase consider themselves semi-retired may still work a little bit. Now, this is the phase, this first two years, where I've seen so many people take the wrong turn. So rather than focusing on health, activities, and relationships, they literally kind of go into frozen mode. They go from working 50 to 60 hours a week 
and their phones constantly ringing with calls, texts, and emails to not having the activity. They didn't plan for it. So they start watching TV, CNBC, Bloomberg, and become ultra-focused on their portfolio. They start questioning every single movement, every single investment, and they go from focusing on their work to their portfolio. And it becomes a disaster. It, it's, it's like a, a crisis waiting to happen. You have to, if, if this is going to be you, you need to practice retirement. You need to, if, if you don't know what you're going to do and you feel like, oh my gosh, I might pay attention to the daily moves in the stock market and watch every dollar of my portfolio. Because look, you go from feeding your portfolio every two weeks with your paycheck to having a limited resource that has to last from retirement to age 100 or longer. And so your risk tolerance will absolutely drop. So if you feel like you're going to end up watching it more often and being worried about movements like we're having right now that have happened in the past and then go away, you're going to need to practice retirement. You need to take sabbaticals. You need to take longer vacations. You need to <clears throat> excuse me, take a couple of months off if your employer will let you and see how you're going to react. Because <clears throat> that... The reason why they call it the liberation slash disorientation phase is some people feel liberated and make it out of that first two years with purpose, and some people never do. And they just, you know, and they they focus on that. They'll start making emotional investing mistakes. They'll pay too much attention to it. They, They just don't end up seeing people. Like I've literally seen people become hermits. Um, so you, you have to be very careful not to have that happen to you. That's, this is a phase where you're kind of on the teeter totter here. Now from year three to 14 retirees end up with what's called the reinvention phase. That's the heart of retirement. This is what you prep for health wise so that you start getting into it hopefully forever, but, but especially in that 10 years from retirement, you're like, okay, I'm focusing on my money, but I also got to focus on my health. So I'm not going to the doctor three to five days a week once I am retired. Um, you really get more time on that first two years of retirement, that, reju- that, uh, that liberation disorientation phase, if you can focus on your health. So that from year three to 14, this reinvention phase, the harder retirement, Ken says in this article, um, now is when retirees do the most and explore the most and family is a growing pleasure. Health, however, becomes more of a concern and this is where retirees learn to shift their mindset from accumulation to distribution. And again, this is, this is the area that I specialized in. This is why you always constantly hear me since 1999 talk about distribution planning on radio where, where you've got to know what your cash flow situation looks like between your total expenses, including your healthcare costs, which you probably don't even know about yet. Um, you know, what are you going to pay for Medicare Part B plus Irma? You know, all those different things. There's a lot that goes into retirement planning and you have to have the three years worth of portfolio draws in cash. Like I talk about, and then a, a proper allocation everywhere else. Um, your mindset is different. When it comes to accumulating wealth, every year you're like, how can I pay the least amount of taxes? And how can I make this baby grow? When you start dealing with the distribution phase, you're how can I lower, keep my tax bracket lower for longer? How do I look at my entire 30 plus year of retirement and deal with taxation? 
how do I deal with the occasional market correction so that when I'm withdrawing on my portfolio, I'm not doing it when stocks or bonds are down? How do I get through those phases? How, how do I know that I have a plan so that during this period of time, you're three to 14, the heart of retirement, I already know I have a financial plan in place. I know what to do in the good markets and the bad markets. And I can concentrate on my friends and family and exploring the world and things like that. And, and you want to have good health in this phase. So the thing to note too about wealth management versus wealth accumulation is, is you know, when, you, when you're selling and pulling some stuff off the table to maintain the proper portfolio and to always replenish your cash, it's okay to, you're missing out on some of the up phase so that you're ready for when the downtimes come, right? The market's positive 70% of the time, negative 30% of the time. So odds are our stock market is going to treat you very well over time. But when you're drawing money out, it's a game of math. And so distribution planning, is, it's a big deal. Um, the thing that notes too during this phase is, is, again, you have to realize that your risk tolerance is going to drop as soon as you retire. And especially during this phase when you realize, okay, I'm retired. I know what I'm spending. And this is my chunk of money with my social security and pension. This is how long I got to make it last. And it becomes an issue if I want to participate in the upside, but have a plan for the occasional downside. Very, very important. Today, talking about Ken Deichwald's um, breaking down the four stages of retirement. It was covered by Jennifer Leah Reed in Financial Advisor Magazine. And the phases that we're going over, the anticipation phase, the first 10 years of retirement, the liberation slash disorientation phase, the first two years of retirement, the reinvention phase, which is essentially years three through 14, and then the reflection phase. Now, one of the things, a couple of things that are all phases have in common, people are always worried about, do I have enough money to last you know, as long as I do? Um, inflation, healthcare costs. Those are big ones, right? And, and all of it, it's, you've been getting a check your whole life and how do you live on, how do you make your lump sum last, right? 36% of retirees feel that managing money and expenses is more confusing during retirement than they were saving for retirement. And I, I'll agree 100%. When you're, when you're younger, 20, 30, 40 years old, you hit that 15 to 20% of income savings, added index funds, whether it's your 401k or your Roth, you're not going to go too wrong. You just save. And the stock market would take good care of you over time. There's so many issues in retirement, especially when do I take social security? If I'm going to wait till 70 to take social security, where am I going to get my money from in the meantime? Do I do IRA to Roth conversions? Which accounts do I take from first? If I have different asset classes like large cap, small cap, mid cap, international emerging markets, bonds, which accounts do I hold them in? Um, all sorts of things. It's, it, it, there's a lot that goes into retirement planning. Now, 36% of retirees feel managing money and expenses is more confusing in this article, but they also say 71% of them want to help out their kids. Well, how do you know if you have enough to help your kids or your grandkids if you don't have a really solid financial plan and detailed cash flow projection with conservative rates of return being built into the plan and decent amount of inflation? You've, you've got to have a really good financial plan because especially at around the 15th year, you'll enter this reflection slash resolution stage of retirement. In this article, it talks about the happiness, contentment, and enjoyment remain strong, even if there's been some downshifting due to health issues. This is, this is, <laughs> this is what I really, really worry about for my own self. 
in retirement. And maybe it's because of, you know, being almost 48 now and, uh, being extremely active with snowboarding, wake surfing, and, you know, definitely not looking my age and wondering what I'm going to be like if I start to lose, you know, hip and knee issues and I can't go hella skiing and I can't go surfing with my son, those kind of things. I don't know how I'm going to deal with all that. So essentially I'd like to do a lot more of that now and work even later if I have to. That's kind of how I've changed my views of retirement, just, just seeing these different phases in life. But those that, let me get into this because in this reflection slash resolution stage, even though there's some downshifting due to health issues, those that have lived within their means and have been able to weather the storm and gone through market corrections and things like that, it's interesting. They start to look at what the legacy that they're leaving. But when they're asked how they want to be remembered, the survey found that the top two responses were for their personal characters and for their experiences they shared with loved ones. It's not how much money they were worth or the car that they drove. The bottom two in this survey were work accomplishments and the wealth they accumulated and left to others. The bottom two. The top two, again, were their, they wanted to be remembered for their personal characters and and, um, and the experiences they shared with their loved ones. So let that sink in a little bit. I mean, I think that's, that's really important. Um, then this, this survey and this article, they talked about people that got broken down into more these, these groups, right? That when they looked at this final stage, there was several different groups. The purposeful pathfinders were the ones that were, that, who always saved and were financially literate. That's 23%. Relaxed traditionalists who started saving a little bit later than the pathfinders, but are still doing well in retirement. That's 26% of those in this survey. Challenged yet hopefuls who started saving in their 40s, but are still positive about retirement. That's 20%. And the largest of the four groups, the regretful strugglers, 31%. They started saving late, if at all. They made withdrawals along the way. They robbed their 401ks to buy houses and things like that. And they just never lived comfortably on what they had. They got a job, a new job, a, a bonus, and a higher salary. They would spend it or get a new house or a new car and end up very pessimistic and blaming others. The two happiest groups, the pathfinders and the traditionalists, there was five patterns of behavior that led to major enjoyment of retirement. This is where I think the article gets really, really good. You've heard me talk about this before. Number one, they actively maintain their health. I can't stress to you how much it's important if you're in that 10-year pathways to retirement and in retirement that you focus on your health, your diet, your exercise. You can save all the money that you want, but if you live you know, an unhealthy life and then you end up in your late 60s, early 70s with all sorts of issues, none of the money is going to be worth it. It's just not. So number one, they actively maintain their health. Number two, they're more socially engaged. Number three, they have a clear sense of purpose. And typically those are the ones that get out of bed. They you know, meditate, pray, go work out, um, and go volunteer and spend a lot of time with family. Uh, number four, they're far more mindfully involved in a financial strategy and management. I run into people all the time that have been in a financial relationship. Somebody's been managing their money for years 
And they get into a market like this when both stocks and bonds are down. And you're like, okay, where are you getting your money from this year? And I'm all well, the same place as before. I'm like, okay, you're going to be selling on, the, on a down market then. So what, what's your distribution strategy? Have you been talked to about IRA to Roth conversions? Those types of things. Um, next one, number five, they're, they're willing to course correct as needed to achieve their retirement dreams. So this is interesting because a lot of people that don't have a good financial plan in place, they think that just because the market's down 12%, they got to cut their expenses by 12%. That's not the case. You might make a small adjustment for a 10-year period that you don't even notice and your, your financial plan's still on track. So you're willing to course correct as needed and it's not a stressful event. So retirement is definitely in stages, people. And I think that's a great way to look at the different stages and concentrate on the health aspects, the social aspects, the, the relationships and things like that. So I hope that all made sense. If you need some help with your financial plan, your retirement plan, your investment management, just find me at chadburton.com. That's chadburton.com. We've got a team of over 80 certified financial planner practitioners and more to help make it through your different retirement phases. Have a great day. Please tell a friend about the show. All of the podcast links and everything else are at chadburton.com. <laughs> 